Pints with Jack, Season 4, Episode 93. Bonus episode. C.S. Lewis's best book, or his worst? Good morning, everyone. It's David here again. I said last week that we were going to be airing two episodes of when Andrew went on the Upstream podcast with Shane Morris, and today is that second episode. And in this episode, well, tell you what, I will just read the description on the Upstream podcast website. It says, for this episode, Andrew Lazo tries to convince Shane that Till We Have Faces is a misunderstood masterpiece that embodies the Oxford professor's fully mature thought on the nature of love. So listeners to this podcast will know that Andrew solidly and firmly believes that Till We Have Faces is Lewis's best book. And in this episode on the Upstream podcast, he tries to convince Shane, who is something of a skeptic on this issue, that Till We Have Faces really is that good. Let's see how he does. Welcome to Upstream. I'm Shane Morris. Well, if you've listened to this podcast for some time, you know that I love C.S. Lewis. His work has been one of the chief influences in my spiritual life and uh, just my development as a person. He was one of the 20th century's most remarkable writers, a reluctant convert to the Christian faith who became as bold as a lion in defending it. But people who look at Lewis only or even primarily as the author of Narnia, I think are making a big mistake. Much of his most serious and important work is elsewhere, and I've had the chance to feast on much of that, especially his cosmic trilogy and his nonfiction. Lewis was a sage of love and joy, a writer whose pursuit of a desire that nothing in this world could satisfy ultimately led him to the lover of souls. And until a few years ago, I could honestly say that I loved and took joy in every C.S. Lewis book I'd ever read. But then I read one I didn't, one that puzzled and frankly kind of repelled me. And just my luck, it was the book Lewis himself considered to be his very best. Till We Have Faces is a retelling of the Greek myth of Psyche and Cupid, conceived by Lewis as a kind of parable of the Christian story. At the time I finished it, I remember looking at my wife and asking, what did I just read? And though everyone in the know, all the Christian literati I was acquainted with, assured me uh, of the genius of the book and that that genius had simply eluded me, the more I've studied it and heard the case for it, the more I've kind of become convinced that Lewis simply missed the mark on this one. And hey, that's no big deal. You know, we all deserve a mulligan. Well, today I welcome to the program someone with a very, very, very different opinion of Till We Have Faces, who's going to try and change my mind. Andrew Lazo is an international known speaker and writer specializing in C.S. Lewis and the Inklings. He's the author of Mere Christians, Inspiring Encounters with C.S. Lewis, and edited and published a previously unknown book of Lewis's called Early Prose Joy. Andrew is currently pursuing his doctorate in Romantic Theology at Northwind Seminary, where he also serves as a distinguished lecturer. And he's working also on a long-awaited study of exactly the book that we're talking about today, Till We Have Faces. Andrew Lazo, welcome back to Upstream. It's great to have you, brother. Oh, man, I missed you guys. It's, uh, I love the work that you're doing. Great to be with you, and I can't wait to roll up my sleeves and, uh, and have some good, <laughs> good, solid argument. On guard. Well, the last yeah. time you were on the podcast, we talked about the coherence of Lewis's whole 
literary canon, how everything in his work seems to fit together like a puzzle and drive toward this unified theme or message. This time I want to really zero in on Till We Have Faces. Um, but just for anyone listening who uh, who really hasn't read the book, doesn't know what we're talking about, could you give kind of the uh, the basic synopsis? What is this book? What it's, what's it about? What's Lewis sure. trying to do in it? And, and spoiler alert, we're about to spoil the book for you. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, there are so many levels to that book. Uh, several rereadings will uh, will produce even more revelation each time. And so uh, there's plenty of material there. Um, so this is a book that Lewis said had been growing and thickening in his mind since he was a teenager. And he tried several times in several different forms to, uh, to write the story of Cupid and Psyche. That old Greek myth is a myth about a woman who's so beautiful that she boasts that she is even more beautiful than Aphrodite or Venus. Um, and Aphrodite, Venus, the gods, they're jealous. And so uh, Venus sends her son Cupid to go and kill her. But when Cupid sees her, he realizes she's so super beautiful that he marries her secretly, falls in love with her. Well, Psyche's sisters are so jealous of her beautiful palace and her great situation that they send her in to, uh, to see her husband. Cupid, being a god, has forbidden Psyche from seeing him face to face. And so she can only come to him at night uh, when he's bathed in shadow. And so her sisters say, okay, great, go in with a lamp. He's probably fooling you. He's probably ugly. He might be a villain. She goes in with an oil lamp, leans in at his beauty, and a drop of oil falls on his shoulder. He wakes up. He's furious. He sends her on these impossible tasks, and, uh, and Psyche goes off to complete them. She eventually does complete them and, um, and uh, becomes a goddess. Lewis said the central alteration that almost thrust itself into his mind from his first reading uh, of the story, which he found in Apuleius' Golden Ass, he said, I thought that Apuleius was wrong. I thought that the sisters probably couldn't see the palace. And so that's the central kind of change that he then portrays until we have faces. He's retelling the Cupid and Psyche myth, but from the mouth of the jealous, ugly, older sister, of Psyche, who thinks that she always gets, you know, kind of gets everything her way. Um, mm. Lewis tried many times to write it, couldn't do it until after he met Joy Davidman. And they, and in fact, um, by several accounts, wrote it together. Uh, he claimed, um, according to several folks who, who had known him, to, that she was his co-author. And uh, he said after he wrote it that it was much my best book and far and away my best book, but it was his one great disappointment with the critics. And I think part of it was that it was so obscure. So uh, that's kind of a, a, quick, a quick rundown on that, of that baffling, uh, beautiful book. Okay. So it's my turn to step into the, uh, step into the box here for my heresy trial. Okay. So <laughs> um, first of all, a, a preliminary comment. Uh, I think that a lot of what happens, or a lot of what I've encountered with Till We Have Faces is this literary consensus that's taken on its own life. And, and this just rubs me the wrong way. So even if there's a book that's really, really good, like War and Peace or something, or Les Mis, mm -hmm. the fact that people pretend to like it just because it's the fashionable thing to do mm -hmm. really bugs the, you know, it, it, it bugs the tar out of me. So mm -hmm. um, the there's kind of an emperor's new clothes effect, first sure. first of all, that happens with Till We Have Faces. So people, sure. you, you know, you talked about in, in your, uh, your talk to the Anselm Society, you mentioned that a lot of people, uh, maybe even most people who read it, come out of the experience going, I'm not sure what that was about, but I really 
like it. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. And I, I wonder if quite a few people are saying it's amazing because they've, you know, they've been told to say it's amazing. Um, and it wasn't, you mentioned a critical or really publishing success. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Lynn Lewis was a bit dismayed and puzzled by that. And I, it, you know, there's some, there's some isolated, like the New York times gave it a good review and stuff when it came out. But, um, I, I tend to think that the critics had this one right. And here's my basic, the basic sketch of why. Um, Lewis, it seems like, is writing something of a theodicy, like a fictionalized theodicy. There's a justification for God or, or by way of the gods here in, in, in mm-hmm. the, Greek, um, the Greek framework he's working through. And he does this by writing it primarily upside down, as you say, from the perspective mm-hmm. of the character he's actually criticizing. Just like the Screwtape Letters, we're not supposed to believe Orwell or, or you all or however you say her name. Um, they say it Orwell in the audiobook. It's yeah. we're, we're supposed to take we're supposed to find fault in her account of things, at least in the first, um, the first section. So, but I think he did too good of a job on her because Orwell comes across as justified to me and right in the first part of the book. And then Mm -hmm. she gets in the latter part, she gets, it's, it almost seems like she's getting gaslit. She's made to feel that her, you know, rational love for psyche is evil or possessive or selfish. The the fact that she sees, um, you know, the the facts as she sees them, she's made to doubt them. You know, my sister was a human sacrifice. I expected her to be dead. I found her alive on the mountain, saying that she's actually found complete and perfect joy with this guy who, you know, won't let her see his face, but she he you know he comes and has sex with her at night. Um, what should a good big sister do? And that's, and I realize, you know, we're in a mythological framework here, so things are weird, but what should a good big sister do? And at the end, she's given this script to read by the gods, right? She thinks she's brought her own complaints, but she's got this script that she's going to read. And it turns out that it's, you know, she says this is her real thoughts that were going on behind the scenes. But I just can't shake the feeling that she is being gaslit like nobody's business. Um, Orwell has a hard time of it from the beginning, right? So she's ugly. She's physically ugly. And we're naturally disposed based on a lot of different stories to pity her because of that. So when I first got into it, I thought, oh, this, this is going to be like, she's going to be beautiful in the end or something, you know, because yeah. Susan is always the one who's beautiful and she gets all the attention and Lucy's kind of homely looking, but Lucy's the main character of the thing, right? She's the heroine. And here we meet this ugly woman who turns out not only is she ugly, but you're supposed to dislike her too and disbelieve everything she says. So it's really, I mean, it's hard luck for her. Um, and it, it goes against this um, this instinct that runs through a lot of the inkling stuff. So I remember, remember what Frodo said to Strider. Uh, he said, you know, a servant of the enemy, I think would look fair and feel foul, but Strider looks foul and fears, feels fair. Mm. Um, so she's got this legit complaint from the beginning against the gods. She, she kind of should be the underdog hero. And, and here we get into the real meat of my, my criticism of this book. Two, two things. First of all, I think it comes across as an apology for fideism, for just believing in some supernatural claim or interpretation without really good evidence. It's kind of um, the attitude that would immediately lead us to be deceived by false teachers who show you know, signs and wonders. So there's a little f- a flicker of something, a, a, a glimpse of that, and all of a sudden we're supposed to sort of remodel our whole worldview. It seems very different to me, and we talked about this last time you were on the show, it seems very different to me from the portrayal of God we get in The Great Divorce, or in Narnia, or in, um, or in the Space Trilogy, where 
you've got God is so obvious and so overwhelmingly plain and his wonder is so is so pressing in upon you that you have to literally, you know, circle up with your buddies, put your fingers in your ears, close your eyes and pretend forcibly that you're still in the stable or pretend that, you know, the lion that he's trying to talk to you is just roaring and growling like Uncle Andrew did or or uh or you know, pretend that the um, that all the happiness and light and joy and solidness you see in the uplands is not real. That you know those people need to come down to your level and be in the be in the shadowy uh, ghost lands of purgatory. So it, the all those things together make it very difficult for me to see this book as um, not just you know n- not only Lewis, as Lewis's um, as as a you know meaningful and and beautiful and powerful contribution to his overall canon. But as, as you describe it as the kind of linchpin or the Rosetta stone of the whole canon as like his truly his greatest work and the work in which all his other work is found. So I'll, I've been talking for a while. I'll let you respond to that and tell me, tell me what your thoughts are. Well, uh, I just want to tell you that uh, your case is never in such a bad state as when you see me looking down because I'm taking notes and I'm coming <laughs> <Right>. for you. <laughs> so bring it on, um, brother. A, bring it on. Yeah, there's a there's a couple of things, and I think that you are right to object so strongly to this book, and I think it's Lewis's most objectionable book, um, without mm-hmm. any question. And people often ask why Lewis uh, resonates so well, why he understood, how he understood people so well, um, why he seems so contemporary. When I was doing work with Max McLean and Screwtape on stage and doing the talkbacks, people were like, why is this so fresh? It's fresh because Lewis looked in his mirror and really saw the whole world. He saw the the difficulty of the human heart and the hardness of the human heart. In lots of his other mm. books, he's trying to portray the goodness that's that's coming. And in this one, I think that he's kind of going in the opposite direction. Is it an objectionable book? Yes, absolutely, without question. But I think it's because he's looking so hard into the shallowness and and darkness of his own soul and writing up what he sees there and then showing this kind of glimmer of hope at the end. I mean, it's not altogether unlike the journey to Mordor and the uh, ultimate despair. I mean, Tolkien talks about hopeless and says hopeless again and again and again. And it's this terrible book where Frodo can't even get the ring over the edge and has to be saved by Gollum. Right? The whole world is saved by Gollum. That's that kind of modernist slash postmodernist novel for the age. And that's what Tilia Faces is, too. It's this kind of anti heroic novel. Uh, in the end, there's a little bit of hope. The eagles come and save uh, Frodo and, and, and Sam. In the end, there's a little bit of hope. Orwall converts and, uh, and realizes that she has been loved by love, uh, though she has rejected it all of her life. So I think you're right to object, but it, he's writing it specifically because it's objectionable. And in terms of this kind of absence of God, um, a companion piece to Till We Have Faces is uh, Lewis's, in, in my opinion, his best work as an adult Um, at least the most helpful book that I've ever read of his, The Four Loves. Uh, Incidentally, uh, I'm doing a podcast. Yeah, yeah, amazing book. Um, I'm involved with Pints with Jack, uh, which a couple of other guys and I are doing uh, a book by Lewis every year. I joined uh, this year for Screwtape Letters. Last year, they had me on as a guest for Till We Have Faces. Next year, we're doing The Four Loves. And by the way, they would agree with you. They would say that uh, The Great Divorce is Lewis's best book, but certainly not Till We Have Faces. 
The idea of linking the four loves with Till We Have Faces is indisputably central to understanding the book because what Orwall is doing is rejecting Philia and Storgi and, uh, and Eros and Agape. I mean, she's rejecting all four of those loves from the very beginning. And that's kind of present in the first, in the first line. As a matter of fact, I happen to have a copy right here. Finally found the paperback of the American I get the impression you have a few copies of this one. I, I, yeah, I, I do. I do. In fact, I have every edition ever published. Um, <laughs> she says at the very beginning, I am old now and have not much to fear from the anger of gods. I have no husband, nor child, nor hardly a friend through whom they can hurt me. Husband is Eros. Uh, um, child is Storgi, friend is Philia, and the gods hurting her is the opposite of Agape. She's refuting the four loves by her own testimony. And yes, we are being gaslit. You're really wise to pick that up. But the person who's gaslighting us is Orwall. So in the very first page of book two, she says, I have to rewrite my book to leave it thus would be to die perjured. She is gaslighting herself and deluding herself quite deliberately. And the denouement where she finally tells herself the truth and finally realizes that for all of the books she has been loved by love, that's what happens uh, towards the end. Now, let me just read a little bit about Four Loves and then I wanna take your next salvo. Um, so this is the very end of the Four Loves. I think Lewis wrote Till We Have Faces with Joy Davidman as he's falling in love with her in 1955. He marries her in 1956. He marries her again in 1957. And then in 1960, as she's dying, because Till We Have Faces didn't really land with the public, he wrote the prose version of Till We Have Faces, which is The Four Loves. Lewis did this several times. Abolition of Man is That Hideous Strength by Lewis's own admission. Here's Lewis's grand conclusion at the end of The Four Loves. He says, perhaps for many of us, all experience merely defines, so to speak, the shape of that gap where our love of God ought to be. That's what Orwell is doing. Mm. Lewis goes on, it is not enough. It is something. If we cannot practice the presence of God, which I'll argue is what Lewis is doing throughout the 40s with his apologetic writing, if we cannot right. practice the presence of God, it is something to practice the absence of God, to become increasingly aware of our unawareness till we feel like men who should stand beside a great cataract and hear no noise. Where have we seen a cataract? We've seen it in, in Narnia, where they're climbing up the cataract, the, the waterfall, mm -hmm. to Aslan's country. It's a period of revelation. We also see it as a period of revelation in the great divorce, this great cataract with a voice speaking out. And yet, in, in Four Loves, he says, um, as if a man who should stand beside a cataract and hear no noise, or like a man in a story who looks into a mirror and finds no face there. Right. Yeah. And that's what's happening until we have faces. I think what he's doing is portraying the absence of God. T-Bone Burnett, the marvelous producer and, and musician responsible for a number of hits, was in Bob Dylan's band, all the rest. He says, as a Christian, we can either write about the light or about what we see by the light. But I think that Lewis goes us one better. And he said, one of the things that Christians can do eminently well is write about the darkness. And I think that only Christians can really write about the darkness of the soul and of the world 
uh, well, and we only do that as we get closest to God. It's not un unlike, this book is not unlike Lewis's St. John the, of the Cross is a dark night mm -hmm. of the soul. So, so what when, you got? Um, and I love the way you describe it there, and that is, that is very, like that's the key and strongest point to me is the, the obvious links that you can draw between this book and his other, um, you know, the other diamonds in his in his canon especially the four loves because the four loves is marvelous it's one of the most illuminating helpful books i've ever read and it's like it's structured how i think about um every relationship in my life i i categorize it in that way it's like you know i love um uh, love and respect and all those books but this one blows it out of the water it's it's mm -hmm. that good mm -hmm. um and i think he was right to put it into a, a non-fiction uh, as well as the the attempt to put it into a fiction the the thing that really um makes me wonder though whether he succeeded is the the fideistic danger that i mentioned in in here mm -hmm. so there's a there's a movie um that everyone's seen either they've seen the old one with the black and white, or they've seen the, uh, the one with, um, with, uh, Richard Attenborough, um, playing Santa Claus and it's miracle on 34th street. Mm -hmm. And it, that movie is, um, it's so, you know, it's cute. It's, it's, it's a family favorite, but at its heart, it's really kind of sinister because it's, it's a, an apology for fideism. And what I mean by fideism is the idea that, um, you should just believe in something in the absence or in the presence of negating evidence. Mm -hmm. So um, so belief itself is the value, not the thing in which you believe. And and um, to me, Till We Have Faces is dangerously open to the charge of fideism because Orwell um, is asked to believe basically in this all-loving God uh, on, the, on the basis of the tiniest slivers of glimpses of, of, of things that could be, you know, produced by any source. So I'm wondering if, if this is really an, a, an effective apology for, um, for something, you know, about the Christian faith, then how does it distinguish itself from say miracle on 34th street? How does it distinguish itself from, let's say, okay, let's say the, the, the God of the mountain. Uh, so in Ungit or her son really were, as Orwell supposes initially, monsters or or like vagrants who are up there taking advantage of her sister or or uh, demons or something like that or false gods, what would be different for her and how would she know otherwise? That's that's yeah. a difficult question for for me to answer reading that book. So I think that what I I love that and in your main objection, I think you have the key to kind of understanding and even undoing that argument. So um, first of all, what I would do is comb through till we have faces looking for the four loves and you'll find them everywhere. And then look hmm. for how she treats the four loves. But keep in mind always that Orwell, especially in book one, is lying to herself. There is an incredible and almost deliberate self-deception. So, um, and... So Lewis is kind of flipping the four loves upside down. And of course, the opposite of love in Lewis is not hatred. The opposite of love is self, right? Pride is the great sin. Love right. is the great virtue. And you find that in Lewis all along. In fact, that's part of what I'm working on. I'm, I'm writing a chapter right now for the third edition of the C.S. Lewis as Philosopher, talking about Lewis's overarching theme about the love of God. And so Orwell has no space for love. Um, so 
Uh, is it fideism? No, I think you're falling for her trap. And her charges against the gods <laughs> seem really legitimate. Uh, I'm but, 100% falling for her trap. Con consciously, yeah. I, it sounds like she's right. It, okay. so, she's, but then, she's written too sympathetically. Yes, she absolutely is. And the fact that we haven't gotten it in 50 years, I don't think is, is, a, is a charge against Lewis. I think that, and as I was getting ready for our talk today, um, the, the thing I wanted to push, push back on you is, um, and it, you know, let's, let's tackle this in a few minutes. What do you right. love about Lewis? And, and everything you love about Lewis is there in spades and in some ways best expressed until we have faces. But you're falling for her argument, but you have to take that statement in book two to leave it thus would be to die perjured. Right? right, And the gods don't write her a script. That's not what happens. She realizes that their only book length complaint that she has been saying amounts to mm -hmm. this argument. Me, 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 right? right? In fact, you hear her saying the same thing that Pam says in The Great Divorce when she can't get access to her son. She said, the girl was mine, 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 mine. He repeats it in this unholy trinity. Don't you mm. know what mine means? And in fact, she is gaslighting because it's only the gods who know how to possess a human soul while setting it free. We know from screw tape that it's the enemy that possesses its soul and, and eliminates its individuality. And so she's so self-consumed that she really can't see what's going on. It's not fideism. In fact, the God is, gods are wrapped in mystery. Holy places are dark places. And I'm sure that Lewis is echoing the Psalm that say, clouds mm -hmm. are round about him, darkness veils his eyes, right? Veils him from our sight. And so Lewis is exploring the negative space, if you will, of fideism, and she only will uh, accept herself, but she is overcome at the end by love that loves her when she treated love with hatred. And in book two, after confessing that she has been lying, when she starts to try to tell the truth, she calls them good gods. She calls Cupid Lord. And remember that Cupid is the god of love, who himself is the son of the god of love, and he is married to the human soul. That's what I celebrate every Sunday. And it's only until she kind of opens her eyes, and the key moment that happens is when she's on the mountain seeing Psyche and seeing Psyche's palace, and she can't see Psyche's palace. But then after she leaves, she gets up in the middle of the night, she goes down to the stream, she gets a drink of water, and she looks up and she sees the palace which she has disbelieved and been unable to see. But Shane, she sees the palace when she assumes the position of humility, when she physically gets on her knees, her body praying and humbling itself, even that much affords her vision. And in Lewis, vision is always the result of turning from self and turning towards love. Only when we read or Orwald do we understand what Lucy is all about because Lucy loves because she's thinking of others. Only mm -hmm. when we read Till We Have Faces do we understand what mere Christianity is about, right? And she's arguing, it's not fideistic. She's arguing the opposite. She's assuming that the gods are horrible and they're actually loving. Just like Lewis and mere Christianity says, let's assume there's no God and let's see if I can make any sense of the evidence. And the evidence is that the gods love her. And that's what kind of comes to her at the very end of the book. But it's a pre-incarnate society. She hasn't seen the incarnation yet, and she's just right. getting there. But it's a book of the hard-hearted, which is why I think it's such a perfect book for our modernist, postmodernist age. 
Well, and maybe it says a lot about me that you know I, I resonate with her so so much. But the um, and, and you know what you're doing here is explaining Lewis's intent marvelously, and I, I think it's obvious. You're obviously just right. That is what he's trying to do. It's very clear. The connections are there. Um, I'm just not. I'm just not so sure that he succeeded. And part of the difficulty is that you know you, you talk about that pre-incarnate atmosphere that's uh, that, or setting that we have here in this book. Um, and we've also got a pagan myth that, that forms the basis of the book. And then he's sort of inhabiting it with Christian sensibilities. And that throws, you know, a lot of people off too. And it throws me off. I, I, I kind of think that the pagan myth um, swallowed up the Christian content and becomes the dominant, you know, force to where it's even hard to see the Christianity through it. But part, part of what also makes it difficult is that in these other books you're talking about, so Pam in The Great Divorce, where she's got this possessive attitude, you know, it, it's, a, it's a, her son, and she wants to, uh, you know, she's like, well, no, I'm not going up there. He needs to come here because I've done nothing but love him and yada, 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 mine, mine, mine. And she's just super selfish and possessive. And that's clearly an attitude that is you know, that will damn you to hell. It will, it will literally keep you from the light. Um, and that's a marvelous portrayal of it. Uh, the, the portrayal of evil flipped in the screw tape letters is a marvelous portrayal, partly because it's so funny, um, the, the, to hear everything from the devil's perspective. It's very satirical, but until we have faces, we, or in, in Narnia, um, I'll, I'll go there too. We have the outside perspective, you know, so we see reality objectively in Narnia at the end of the last battle. We see the, the true Narnia and we see the dwarves who will not be taken in again, who are all huddled there pretending that they're still in a smelly, dark stable and pretending is the right word. You know, they're just refusing. They're shutting their eyes and ears to keep from hearing or seeing or smelling or feeling the paradise that's objectively around them. So we have an outside perspective on all those. In, in Till We Have Faces, Lewis takes us and puts us inside the, the eyes and senses of one of, the, mm-hmm. one of the reprobate, as it were, or one of the people who are just not, I know she you know, turns in the end, but who's not, um, who's not buying it. And because of that, it becomes so easy to believe what she's saying and accept what she's saying. And obviously, he intended what she's saying not to be accurate and true, but it still feels to me like he overdid her case. He overargued it to the point where now it's difficult to accept the the quick reversal that happens in the end. It's like everything up till now has been this, and now she goes up. Oh, BT dubs. I was wrong, uh, and then she like dies in the middle of her sentence. Right. So there's almost a suggestive uh, moment where she she kind of is about to say, "Now I love them, the gods," but. But she doesn't. She doesn't quite get there, and it just feels like the uh, almost like a Deus Ex, you know. Yeah, end. yeah, yeah. Just, yeah, just a quick turnaround. Yeah, um, you know, a couple of things. Great, and I love the way that you. It, I think you're reading it exactly the right way. First of all, you're taking sure. it seriously, and you're grappling with it, and it should take a grapple. A good book should make us grapple with it for years, right? And, and I went into this really wanting and expecting it to love it too. That's part of that was part of yeah. the weirdness of the experience. Me too. Yeah. And you're, uh, um, and you said identify so much with with Orwell. Lewis yeah. did. <laughs> we do. That's the right. intent. And remember, he, she's kind of writing this whole thing and we just get for kind of, she's reviewing her whole life and then we get the last few days of her life in book two. Mm-hmm. I think that all of this is very deliberately by design. Um, she, she does finish her sentence, right? We just can't read it because it's obscured by herself. So much in this book is obscured by Orwell's self. 
But she says, long did I hate you, long did I fear you, I might. And then Arnam says, there are words after I might, but her head is fallen on the words. So the great irony is that it's Orwell herself who's preventing us from seeing the words, which I believe are, long did I hate you, long did I fear you, I might love you, right? Mm. And that's the point of the book. She might love them. She doesn't get there. We don't know if we'll see Orwell in heaven. She obscures this idea of love by the face that she lays on the words. But I believe she's bowing prostrate in worship and in an abandonment of self. And so Lewis doesn't ever give us the answer, right? And it's only me who has asserted that the words are, love you. Lewis didn't tell us anything about that. And so right. I think you have this kind of complete bowing in hope of, it's, a, it's kind of a proleptic look. Um, and yes, you're absolutely right that she's pretending. And now pay attention to where we see pretending in Lewis's oeuvre, especially in Edmund, who is tired and pretending not to be tired. Pretending is a sign of spiritual, um, uh, uh, of, uh, of, of inconsistency. It's, it's, um, it's, counter, it's a spiritual counterfeit. And so pretending is instead of being the authentic self. And Orwell is puffing herself and saying, oh, this is, this is how terrible we are. It's kind of like reading a book written by Gollum, right? Right. <laughs> um, so she's this was pretending. Way better grammar. Exactly. <laughs> she's pretending, but what happens to Edmund? Edmund gets the hell over himself begins thinking of someone besides himself for the first time, and that right. leads to repentance. And by the end of his appearance in the Chronicles, in, in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he begins to see things as quickly as Lucy sees them. And sight and vision, especially in Lucy, is always a sight of kind of spiritual, uh, spiritual revelation. So Edmund goes from pretending and being spiritually inauthentic to actually seeing things as quickly as Lucy does. And so we see this conversion, but that's after an encounter with Asin. Orwell is still 300 years in front of the harrowing of hell where she actually meets Ungit's son. So that's part of it. Another thing too, and you brought this point up a couple of times and I'm glad you did. He hid it too well. Yes, we don't understand it. He made it too hard. Absolutely. But if you pay attention to the work of Michael Ward, especially his planet Narnia, we didn't understand that the seven planets correspond, or the seven Narnias correspond to the seven medieval planets for 50 years. And these were the books that he wrote before he was at Cambridge, more money, more leisure, and falling in love with, with Joy Davidman, right? And so yeah. it would make sense that he hid the key to the book in all of his other books, and we haven't found it yet, that there's such depth that people continue to grapple with till we have faces. And I think that I'm kind of on the cusp of kind of unveiling it and, and, and ripping the seams open. But that's the, the fact that we didn't understand it or that Lewis made it too obscure. One of the things that I joke with my colleagues at Pints with Jack about, because they love uh, Great Divorce, Matt and David, and, uh, but they also haven't read all of Lewis. So David just the other day texted me a line from Reflections on the Psalms saying, oh my gosh, this is till we yeah. have faces. The more you read Lewis, the more you grow in grace, the more you grow in God's love and your understanding of Lewis, the better till we have faces is. And so that's, I think, why we don't get it. It's because it's that monumental a work that we can't really have that perspective until we kind of rip things open a little bit more. So I don't have a principled objection to the um, 
the idea of using the pagan myth, using mm-hmm. the Greek gods as vehicles to teach this stuff. And I know that, you know, there's some c- claims that Lewis is kind of making almost a syncretistic case in this. And I, I think mm-hmm. it's probably a bit much to read into it. But, um, and I love the way he uses the gods in in the space trilogy because he turns them into, you know, he turns the Greek myths into just garbled, um, uh, you know, half remembered distortions of the real beings who are actually Malacandra and Paralandra, you know, Mars and Venus. And they are actually, they're actually angels. They're high angels. And they're, they are, they are the Oyarsu or the, uh, or the uh, archons of planets. Right? right. And Satan was the archon of our planet, but he fell, which is such a cool concept. Um, so he, he, he nests Greek mythology within his bigger cosmology there. Uh, in this one, the Greek mythology is a, it's a very uh, all-encompassing mask. It's almost like it, it, there, there are very few points in which you read it and in which you think, oh, this is actually about the you know, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You, you just, the, it's taken for granted. This is kind of somewhere in the vicinity of Greece. Um, she wants to send her work to Greece at the end because she's heard there's men there who are willing to question the gods. Um, all, all, that, all that kind of thing. Do you think that um, do you think there's any validity to the idea that Lewis could have overcloaked this in Greek mythology to the point where it makes it difficult to see through? Yeah, no, absolutely okay. not. In fact, I think <laughs> I that cloaking. Not. Yeah, yeah. What else? What else is I going to say, Shane? Um, but I think that he's doing that very deliberately. So, um, one of the things that makes Michael Ward's revelation about the planetary and mythological import of the seven planets and how they help us understand the Chronicles of Narnia. Remember, he finishes the Chronicles in 53, and then in 55, his next fiction, he's writing Till We Have Faces. Did he cloak the myth too well? What Michael Ward has kind of helped us see is a bigger kind of global sense as to what Lewis was doing. I think that Till We Have Faces, and I wouldn't be quick to dismiss what he said. He said, far and away my best book. He's either lying, exaggerating, misinformed or mistaken, or it's true. We know he's not lying. He's not given to exaggeration, I don't think. I don't think he's misinformed about his work, uh, so I think it's true. And remember what Barfield said, what Lewis thought about everything was secretly Mm -hmm. present in what he wrote about anything. So what I think happens when we approach Till We Have Faces and we're frustrated by it, I think that that's the first way that we should respond. I think Lewis perhaps intended that in the the long run. Um, The short run, I think he lost the battle, but I think that he's winning the war. I think that we don't understand the big pieces of Lewis well enough to understand Till We Have Faces. And here they are. Lewis's central idea is not joy. And in fact, if you don't believe that, read the last page of Surprise by Joy. It says joy served right. only as a signpost to something other and outer. And other and outer in Lewis is always a keyword pointing us to love. Okay. Lewis's central goal is not, lo- is not joy or desire, Zenzuk. His central goal is the love of God. Right? That's why one of the best books that he wrote, and one of the last ones, was The Four Loves. And he couldn't write that until he had experienced all four loves. Love is Lewis's center, not joy. And if you think of love as being the center, and Orwell is on a journey towards love, and the gods of love, imperfectly portrayed and even imperfect 
pagan gods still embodying love and trying to call her out of herself and her steadfastly refused. It's a tussle with love versus pride, which is everywhere in Lewis. So love is one of those. Clarity is another. Lucy, Lux, Lucas, Light, Lucy sees. Mm -hmm. In The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you just count how many times Lucy notices something first. She knew where everything was on the Dawn Treader because she can see. Lewis's value in, in approaching love is clarity. And his goal in all of his books is to make things clearer, right? And the means that he's doing it is not the apologetics of the 40s. He turns in the 50s to his real vernacular, his real literary love language, which is fairy tale and myth. Lewis loves, and mythos is just the Greek word for story. Lewis loves story. So let me put it together. Lewis is aiming us towards love by means of clarity, using myth. Lewis uses story to clarify things even by making them darker in order for us to see love, right? And the opposite of love- Yeah, it's really similar to what Aslan tells the children when he, you know, at the end of Don Treader, which at the time, I guess Lewis was assuming would be the end of the series, but, um, you know, where he says, this was the very reason you were brought into Narnia, that by knowing me here for a little, you would know me better there. Absolutely. And someday you'll be old enough to start reading fairy tales again. And Tolkien, as Tolkien said to Walter Hooper of Blessed Memory, um, Lewis's secretary, Tolkien had all these maps and genealogies and geographies and histories. And Tolkien said to, to Walter Hooper, you know Jack, you know Lewis, he had to have a story. And that story, The Lord of the Rings, was written to keep him quiet. So what you have is Lewis's masterpiece story about the darkness of the human soul. And you know as well as I do, when you read the great saints, the closer they get to God, the more abased and full of darkness they find themselves, right? Mm. That's why I brought up the dark night of the soul. The great saints really understand how terrible they are. And that's what Lewis says in, in Mere Christianity, that good cannot succeed in being, or evil can't succeed in being evil, as well as good succeeds in being good. The, the good man knows how bad he is. The bad man hardly, hardly knows at all. And there's that clarity. So it's it, Lewis using story to achieve clarity about love, right? Yeah. It's myth, clarity, and char uh, clarity and charity. And that's why I think Two Way of Faces is a masterwork because all of these things are playing and, and hitting on all pistons uh, in this book and all the other books kind of echo towards or, or look back on this one. I love the trilemma approach to this, and you use this at the Anselm Society. It was such a good you know, portion of your talk because that is, a, that is an excellent way to treat this book. Either Lewis was right that this was his far and away his best work, or he was, you know, exaggerating or lying, or he was, and I, I guess you group those together, or he was mistaken. Um, and so I would fall into the, you know, he was mistaken. I don't think he's given to exaggeration or, or lying, but I, I do, I, I do think that, you know, like all great authors, he, um, you know, he, he has a, probably has a weakness for getting stuck too deeply in his own, you know, the whirlpool of his own thoughts. And, th and that, you know, that leads to my next question. And we're, you know, we're coming up on the end of our time here, but I wanted to, to know if you think Lewis expected this to be a great success that everyone got and everyone felt the same way about as he did, or if he expected it to confound and puzzle people as it has, you know, me and apparently a lot of others. Um, yeah, let me answer that question first, and then I want to return to your sure. whirlpool. Um, 
his, he said he called it his great disappointment. I may be proof texting or just trying to trying to prove what I what I think about this book, but having read it as deeply as I can for 20 years, um, I think that Lewis wrote a masterpiece on the level with, and I'm just I'm gonna overstate the case because that's what I like to do. <laughs> I like to jump into the deep end and see if I can keep myself from drowning. I think sure. he intended to write a masterpiece of his age. I think he and Tolkien were embodying modernism while pushing against it. I think that he was trying to write something that was as circuitous in the city as, as Ulysses was, right? And there's mm -hmm. another dark and obscure myth in modernist literature, right? The modernists were doing that all the time. They were obscuring myths in order to make them kind of clear, I guess. I think Lewis was trying to write a masterpiece, and I think he did. I just don't think that we have gotten it yet because I think he hid it too deeply. And I think the more work and the more study that we do on it, the more revel revelatory it will be. I'm dying for some classics scholar who has classical Greek to translate till we have faces into classical Greek. Because <laughs> I bet you there's revelation there. And I think that Lewis is writing it in Greek in his head when she claims to be writing in Greek. And Lewis did this all the time in the Oxford History of English Literature, 16th century, right there. He took things from the 15th century, uh, took modern translations and trans of, he took foreign literature and translated them into 15th century English. He's playing around with these translations all the time. And I think that we would find revelation just by translating it into classical Greek and finding these incredible puns and insights. Was he trapped in a whirlpool of his own thoughts? Shane, this is the, the first time in his life where he wasn't. And in order to find the key, you've got to read the great, or you have to read A Grief Observed again. What was she to me? He says, she was my trusty comrade, my friend, the best, my best of friends, and I have had good ones. He gives her all of these male roles. And he says, I loved her for how she pricked all my balloons. And remember that Orwell says the gods blow us up to prick us. Right? right, that word is co is not coincidental. I soon learned not to talk rot to Joy Davidman, except for the sheer pleasure of having her knock my legs out from under me. He is not <laughs> in this miasmic pool of his own thoughts. Joy Davidman has been writing love sonnets to him from like 1949 until 1954. She shows him the sonnets, I believe, and she stops writing them in 1955 as they are writing till we have faces together. And in one of the sonnets, Joy Davidman calls CSO. She says, oh, my great Antarctica, my newfound <laughs> land of woman killing frost. She gets through to him and she takes him out of himself, which is the first move of love. It's the first move of faith. It's the first move of humility. Joy Davidman calls Lewis out of himself in a way that nobody else has done. And what she calls out of him is far and away my best book. I think that we misunderstand his relationship with her. I think we misunderstand, the biographers almost always categorize it, as, categorize it as strange and her as manipulative. I don't think we've understood Lewis and love. And I don't think we understood how she pulls this book he'd been trying to write all his life 
And now he's at Cambridge, he's stuck for ideas, he's dried up, and it's Joy Davidman who pulls the book out of him, and they fall in love, according to contemporaneous accounts. Lewis seems to have this change that he doesn't even acknowledge for a couple of years, but falls in love with Joy Davidman around the writing of the book, and love all four loves comes to Lewis as he falls in love with Joy Davidman by writing this book. And there it is. It's myth and it's clarity and it's love. It's all there. You call the book autobiographical in a sense. And it's obvious you're kind of, um, you're moving us in that direction with the background here. But what specifically do you think about um, the character, the main character of Orwell? is similar to C.S. Lewis and, and how is he showing us? Because it's clear you're right about the intent of the book. How is he showing us his own dark side, his own denial of God in her? You know, it's a great question. Um, the, the book that he writes right before Till We Have Faces is Surprised by Joy. And Joy Davidman types up the manuscript. So she's already on the scene and working with him. If you look at the move of Lewis rejecting God and reinforcing that rejection, but God kind of breaking in, in the same way, you have only the briefest denouement at the, at the end of Surprise by Joy. He's not telling this, this story about joy and about God. He's telling this whole story about his resistance to it. I think that Till We Have Faces follows the same kind of moves. And in fact, there, there's language from, Till we Have Fa- or from Surprise by Joy in there. And so I think that what's going on is that this is Lewis's, I think, last and best spiritual autobiography. Um, I was honored to be asked by the Oxford C.S. Lewis Society last term to give a talk on Lewis's autobiography. And so Mm -hmm. I traced autobiography from Spirits and Bondage, uh, 1919, his poem Joy in 1924, Dimer, 1926-27, Early Prose Joy, I Will Write Down, Pilgrim's Regress, Surprised by Joy, Till We Have Faces, and then maybe even A Grief Observed. And so you have this autobiographical arc of Lewis all over his whole life. And that's part of why it's far and away my best book, because he's talking about his spiritual autobiography up until the point where he, is, uh, he comes to what Buechner calls the magnificent defeat of hitting his knees and admitting that mm-hmm. God is God. And so I think that this is finally his most successful spiritual autobiographical attempt. Well, I get this question all the time, so this will be the last one I ask you. But while I've got, um, you know, a C.S. Lewis buff of your caliber here, I want to know uh, on behalf of readers who have just heard a lot about Lewis, maybe they've watched a couple of movies based on him, uh, his life and his work, but they've not really dived into the Lewis canon. Give us the um, give us the pitch that you give for why C.S. Lewis is a is not overrated, why he's a big deal, and how they should read him. Not necessarily a, a, a reading order as much as just a, give us a pathway through Lewis. Where do we start? Absolutely. Well, um, I appreciate so much the question, and it actually points towards something that's about to happen. Christian History Magazine uh, is very friendly towards the Inklings. They've done a number of things before, and they're about to do a new Lewis, epi- uh, Lewis issue. And uh, hmm. I was asked by the editors to write a kind of, <clears throat> where should I start with Lewis? And so I, I use my book, the appendix from my book, Mere Christians, to arrange categorically um, the books by Lewis. And then in this article in Christian history, I say, okay, here's the apologetic books and here's where to start. Uh, some of that material from Mere Christians is, uh, I just made it available for free download on PDF on my website, mythoflove.net. 
under resources. Where should people start in terms of, I've heard about Lewis and how should I approach him? First of all, Lewis said, I've never read uh, more than a page and a half of a book I didn't enjoy. <laughs> so let me invite your listeners to only read what Lewis they love. Read a couple of pages. If they don't love it right away, set it aside. There's not enough time. No, no, hang on a second. The last time you told me I needed to reread till we have faces, but now you're saying that I should have stopped on the first, you know, what a chapter or or, or, or however long it took me. I told you to reread it because I have such great faith in you that you will finally come to the realization that this is the book that you love the most. I think you're Uh, well on your way. (laughs) Um, So uh, I would. Lewis wrote so widely in so many genres. Um, Oftentimes when people say, what Lewis should I read? I say, well, what do you like to read? And then Mm. here's the way to maybe start with that. In terms of Lewis, even 80 years on, he is still such a fresh, insightful, vibrant writer whose insights are, you know, are continuing to move people. And you can see a, find a plethora of, of, of podcasts on that. Max McLean and Fellowship for Performing Arts, their marvelous work to put C.S. Lewis on stage. There's a new movie coming out, Most Reluctant Convert. I mean, Lewis is continuing to draw audiences, to draw people. Go into a used bookstore and try to find Lewis. You won't. It's sold out. Mm. all the time. And so what I would do with Lewis is maybe spend some time in your Barnes and Noble. They usually have a lot of the different ones. You know, pick up a few and, you know, and page through some chapters or go to your library and check out some books and try a few chapters. If you like fairy stories and you're an adult, reread the Narnias. Do it in proper order, of course, and that's another show. Um, (laughs) Or if you like the apologetics, you know, start with mere Christianity. Read it out loud, paragraph by paragraph. I mean, start where you find out what you love and start where you are and then give Lewis a chance. But I think that you'd agree, and many of our listeners would, and it's what I learned from Jerry Root, um, the Lewis scholar from from Wheaton College. Lewis repays careful reading and careful rereading. And rereading Lewis is to me a literary event of such magnitude that it dwarfs most of my new reading because there's Mm -hmm. so much in Lewis that uh, that I missed the first time around. And if you've ever read a Lewis, especially you, Shane, if you've ever reread Mere Christianity or something else that you loved mm-hmm. and found things that you never found before, approach to Leo Faces the same way. And I think that you'll start to see that big picture emerge on the canvas. Well, I can't honestly say that you've convinced me, but you have given me a whole lot to think about and some worthy assignments to tackle. So, uh, Andrew Lazo, thank you so much. This has just been a great conversation. I, I appreciate your uh, your candor and uh, and wit, your courage in, in coming on here to to sort of um, lock horns with me on this. Although, obviously, uh, I, I'm I'm no match for your chops on Lewis, but uh, I thank you for that, brother. This has been this has been wonderful. You know, Lewis said of the Inklings, when one has read a book, I find there's nothing so nice as discussing it with someone else who's read it, even though it tends to produce rather fierce arguments. To me, I'd rather have the argument because we both acknowledge that there's something important going on. So, well, our buddy Dale Stenberg from Pilgrim Faith Podcast keeps threatening to get us together and we'll try to make that happen perhaps this summer. But what a what an honor to, to be with you and to grapple with you and to be reminded of all of the things that I love about Lewis in this book and everywhere else. So there we go. Were you convinced? 
Uh, if you'd like to listen to more of the Upstream podcast, you can find it at every place where you normally get podcasts. You can also find them at the colsoncenter.org, and they also have their own domain, upstreampodcast.org. And we should hopefully be having Shane on this show sometime next season. And please join us again on Tuesday when Andrew will be interviewing Max McLean from the Fellowship of Performing Arts, both about his work in theatre and about the upcoming C.S. Lewis movie. So please join us then when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. <laughs>